0: Dialogue. A journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com.
1: Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's
2: the 50th anniversary. Dialogue. This year, Sunstone joined in celebrating the Dialogue Jubilee with two special dialogue-themed presentations. In honor of our fiftieth anniversary, we now present to you this special podcast featuring past editors of Dialogue reminiscing.
3: Which is the announcement of Dialogue's fiftieth Jubilee celebration, which will take place on September 30th at the uh history museum. There are only a very few seats left, and I know people say this when they have thousands of seats and say, you know, and, and wait, one more. One more thing we can give you. If you do it right now, but really uh, there are only a few seats left. But there will be, this is on the 30th of September. On the 29th of September, there will be, was it the same day, boy? Right? Same day at uh, Utah Valley University. There will be a series of lectures and interviews, uh, Darius Gray will be there, Marlon Jetson will be there, Boyd Peterson will be there, that's the big draw. Uh, Christine Durham. Christine and Dr. Darius and Marlon are being honored uh, at the Jubilee celebration. You know, in the in the scriptures, in the Jubilee, all deaths were forgiven in the 50th year. So if you come to the celebration, you <laughs> forgive all of your deaths. You know. Anyway. Some in our booth, there's a booth out there as well. And that's the last commercial that I have. Uh, some of you have probably have attended some of the other uh, celebrations of dialogue uh, uh, years. And uh, this is a big one, 50 years. Uh, and so we have a panel of uh, people. Come in, Marianne, never see you. So, we have a panel of past editors. Uh, Not all of the past editors could come today. So, one of the things that I uh, ask them to do is to write some of them to write a little uh, uh, reflection on their editorship. So, this is Levi Peterson's. Among the books and magazines on my bookshelves are many of those productions with which I have been involved. These include books I have written and magazines and journals in which my stories and essays have appeared, and also prominent on one of my shelves are the 20 issues of dialogue whose production I oversaw as editor from 2004 to 2008. At my present age of 82, I look back with gratitude on a busy and generally happy I have undertaken many roles, I belong to a large extended family, I've been a husband and father, I've had numerous loyal friends, I have long enjoyed a career as a professor of English at Weaver State University, and finally after retiring from full-time teaching at Weaver State, I was honored to become editor of dialogue for a five-year stint. It was an undertaking that I approached with trepidation. I had recently moved to Issaquah, Washington, which seemed far removed from the centers of Mormon studies. Furthermore, I didn't lack like other things to do, as is true of all of the editors all of Dialogue. None of us lacked for better things to do. I was teaching two online writing courses, and also my wife, Althea, and I were much involved with our daughter's life. She and her husband were both working, and their two young sons required our daily supervision. Adding to my trepidation was a venerable tradition of dialogue. For nearly 40 years, the journal had been foremost among venues, which interpreted Mormonism from a perspective friendly to and independent from the institutional church. Although I had served as acting editor for two other journals, the size of the dialogue venture was daunting, requiring a large editorial staff, most of whose members lived far afield from me. Time proved my worries to be unfounded. It was true that except for occasional trips, I found myself obliged to work on dialogue affairs seven days a week, year round, namely my editorial labors with numerous other daily activities. Fortunately, the editorial staff was highly competent and conscientious. Thanks to email and the telephone, the distances between us proved irrelevant. Conveniently, the core of our production staff and the journal's business manager lived in Salt Lake City and could collaborate in person. I take particular pride in the fact that our 20 issues the mail, if not slightly ahead of, and only a day or two following our self-imposed deadline. It's a claim that editor Robert Reese could never make, maybe one issue of it. I owe the success of our enterprise to the people on the editorial staff. I'm also grateful for the support and encouragement of the journal's board of directors. I'm grateful too for the wide range of scholars, writers, and artists for whom I required Requested evaluations and manuscripts. Certainly, one of my chief satisfactions was the numerous friendships I formed with all those persons of high intelligence and great goodwill. So, that statement from legal. Mary sent a statement and she said, You know, just tell them that on the uh, 20th anniversary, I wrote an article and it's called Big D and Little D, and they can read that. But she said, I'll give you one paragraph. I'd like to add that our staff used to read aloud uh, to each other in order to catch titles. For example, Samuel Clemens, ex-slave. Could have read Samuel, Slavin, Samuel Chambers, sex-slave. So reading things out uh, loud was really a good idea. Um, she said, feeling the feeling that dialogue was edited by effete scholars who wished to change the church was totally wrong. We were like a family, character one another. Do you recall when we drove our kids out to BYU and included a trip to L.A. where we stayed in your house? You were out of town, and Gene and his son Mark were in our house in Virginia. And Gene called to say he and Mark were trying to get the stamp game on TV. And we had to tell him that the cable hadn't yet reached us. This has led to be me down memory lanes, so you don't have to use it all. Just pick out some stuff, OK? And then a note I got just this morning from uh, Neil Chandler, who said, uh,
4: what did Neil say? Well, I guess it was a letter instead of a letter. So Neil said, editing dialogue
3: through a cascade of transitions was intense, time smaller, sometimes draining, always engaging, and a lesson in gratitude to all of the colleagues noted and unsung who over the decades have kept and yet keep the journal vital significant and present. Brevity is the soul of uh, So there are voices from three editors uh, of Dialogue who are not here today. Unfortunately, others are. And so we have a panel uh, consisting of uh, Wes Johnson, who was one of the first editors, along with Jean. And uh, I asked Charlotte to come and share her perspective on those early years when Dialogue was uh, I don't know about you, and some of you are not old enough to remember that. But I remember I was in graduate school, and the first issue of dialogue came with the two people sitting under a tree. And I sat down and read it from cover to cover, and I had immense hope and joy in my church. And I felt, okay, we, we were right. We, we've got something to celebrate. So Wes and uh, uh, Charlotte will talk about those first years. Uh, I was the second editor, and I'll say something toward uh, toward the end. Um, Jack, were you the third? No. Who was the
4: third editor?
1: Central the south, just anyway, <it's> Church address. <laughs> I can't remember, <laughs> anyway, and uh, what I think it's important, I have several things to say today and go back, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, I'm jubilant that I have been able to live until this time, 50 years after the fact, and jubilant that the future, I think, looks very good for dialogue and for independent publications. When we started Dialogue, there was nothing else out there. Uh, There were no, there were one or two fly-by-night publications and anti-Mormon publications, but there was nothing solid out there that represented Mormon thought or Mormon history. And that's a niche that Dialogue aspired to fill, Mormon thought and Mormon history. Uh, That's where Gene comes in with Mormon thought and and, uh, uh, church uh, dialogue. And me with Mormon history, so the two of us together then were able to get dialogue underway. Let me share a few things in the next few minutes about how all of this started. Go back to uh, go back to Harvard, where I was an undergraduate in the early 1950s, and there were a group of people at the Cambridge branch who got together and talked about different problems of, of the church and also how to sh- remain strong in the church because some people were failing, failing and falling away. People like Richard Anderson were there, Truman Madison, Manson was there, Richard Bushman was there, and, and, and numerous others, and I was there. And there was a, it was, a, it was a, an entourage of faith and intellect. And so it was just a thing what, if you were a Harvard student like I was, that I needed and it was really great, good foundation. Okay, fast forward. Uh, later, uh, when uh, I, uh, was that, well, during the time I was in Harvard, I was very lucky to be elected to the Harvard Lampoon, the oldest humor magazine in the United States. Uh, and. Uh, to become an assistant editor to John Updike, who was editor of The Lampoon for several years. Now, I know that sounds strange if you know uh, the kind of stuff John Updike wrote. Let me say this. John Updike was probably the person of greatest genius I've ever met. The guy was a genius. He was flawed morally, and unfortunately, his writings show those flaws. But as an editor, as a friend, as a human being, he was a great guy. And I was under his wing then to learn about how to run a journal, how to run a magazine, do all the different things you do, to make a magazine come out on time uh, every month. I did that for three years working with John up Back. so I give a vote of thanks to him, even though his record, literary record is not the literary record I necessarily share. But he's a great editor, great editor, okay. So, fast forward into uh, a bit later when uh, I was uh, in graduate school, uh, I was able. To, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, before I went to graduate school, I was still still at, at, at Harvard. Why? We made a man named Walter Whitehill an honorary editor of the Lampoon. He said, "Wes, I want you to meet a friend of mine who is a book designer." so forth for uh, uh, Alfred E. Knacki. His name is Rus- Rudolf Fusike, he's one of the most brilliant type designer and book designer and magazine designer in the world. So I got to meet Rudolf Zika and became a friend of his and we went every month to the Art Volumes Club, which is a group of literati in Cambridge, in Boston. And so I got to know something about bookmaking and typography, in particular, using. I had to design the number of Alfred Kinnoff's book. I got me very much interested in getting into doing some kind of quality printing in the future, some kind of work. I didn't know why, what I was, I, where I was headed. I knew I was headed somewhere. Okay, fast forward. Then, when I got, then when I got in graduate school um, at Columbia, I also had wonderful experience. I was in charge of lectures for the History uh, Department and we had numerous scholars who come in and talk about history and publishing. And finally Alfred Ekenoff himself showed up and joined me for dinner afterwards in a rousing conversation of several hours. We talked to him about Updike, and talked to him about book publishing and magazine publishing. I uh, gave me a great incentive, incentive to look at the fine kind of books he was producing, he was probably. I think by acclamation in those days, and even today, the stuff he did was probably in a a class all by itself. Okay, then I leave for a Mormon mission, okay? And I go to France. And this was uh, very happy for me because i studied French. I was delighted to go there. Uh, How does this intersect with dialogue? Well, when I got there, I found that so much Friends from the Harvard Lampoon had started a new intellectual review called the Paris Review. And so I was in Paris as a missionary and they were there starting this new review and he said, hey, can you come and help us? And no, I have other responsibilities here. But I envied them and looked in on what they were doing to so start a review which is still alive today, which has a very distinguished humanities and literary review. And so my friends started this. George Blumton was the prime mover. And I kind of looked in on them, I was not part of them, I was a missionary, I kept it to myself. But on the other hand, I learned a lot from these guys, and it gave me the enthusiasm to think about, you know, really having some kind of a journey, some kind of a location somewhere down the line. Okay, next vignette is, I am a visiting fellow at UCLA, asked to give a speech to a student conference, original subject. So I gave a subject called The Need for an Independent Mormon Journal. And afterwards, people came up and said, this is great, can we start right now? I said, no, no, I am a Disney fellow, I don't stay here. Can't you come back here and start this? And I said, no, I, 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 I'm going to Stanford, I can't come back here. Anyway, the, the point of the enthusiasm that spilled over with all of those UCLA students and the idea of an independent journalist Coming out that would publish more and things that could not be published in the improvement era or elsewhere was an attractive idea. I went back to Phoenix where my family lived, and my mother said, Hey, we're going to have a big swimming party. So I went there, and in my bathing suit, I sat next to Homer Duro, who had become president of the University of Arizona. Homer Duro was their church historian, one of the vice presidents of the University of Utah. Great figure in the church and in the state here, but also in Arizona. And I sat there in my bathing suit around the pool, talking to Homer Durham about the need for some kind of a publication. He became a mentor for me. I tried to get him on the board of Dialogue, much as we persuaded Leonard Harrington and Lowell Bennett to come on, but he held off. And he said, "Look, I can be, I can be, I can be your Emmy on screen, I can kind of you from the corner. So he did, and every time I went to Arizona State and visit him, visiting my family, I'd check with Homer. And as we move forward with the dialogue, like he was an invaluable person, uh, very, very high minded and very practical minded. Okay, now let's go quickly to what happened. I then uh, had been in Africa on a fellowship with the Ford Foundation, we came back and got a fellowship to go to the Hoover Institution. And so to write up my dissertation on African politics, I came there. We came to Escondido Village, a student village at Stanford in 1965, the first part of 1965, and settled in there. And I uh, with on my dissertation for the Hoover Institution as time went on. Uh, why we got to know people at the ward in various things. And one thing that overjoyed me was my Former companion in uh, the mission field, Paul Sadowsky, of course, was also right. there. was also a staff who was there, and I, he and I used to talk about this idea of a Mormon publication. of Sadowsky, he was very interested because he was a person who had a tremendous eye for design. He was an architect. He knew what he was doing, and so we, we talked about various uh, ideas. And one thing that came out of that discussion which I think became a hallmark of dialogue, and that is we said we're have a publication we want it to have class. We want to show the world that the Mormons have class, I mean, we tried not to make a point, but that's one of the things we were talking about that would be important for us to do, not to have a mimeograph bulletin, not to have a thing with a bunch of glossy photos in it, but to have something that looks he and I both have read intellectual journals in France and we had copies of these intellectual journals with us at, at Stanford. Yeah. Close. Go. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going very quickly. Anyway, uh, the point is that we felt that there was a real possibility at Stanford. Uh, but what to do, how, how can you organize something like this? We, we, we know the mechanics of printing uh, he had, and I both had had contacts with printers. Right? Three years I helped all the printing done for the for, uh, Lampoon. And we knew all these things. But the question was, you've got to have an editorial presence. That's what was important. So there we were in the late spring of 1965, sitting around Escondido College at Stanford, talking about the And a woman named Diane Monson, some of you who may know, was a professor at MIT. Diane Monson came through and uh, she said, uh, we talking to old friends of Paul Salisbury and myself, and she said, you guys do. we told her, oh, well, hey, if you talked to Gene England? We said, no, who's he? Have you ever met Gene England? I said, well, no, I, I'm fairly new here. Oh, you're going to meet Gene England. He's like something else. You know what? He's thinking about doing this too. I said, we have rivals. And she said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so, within a few weeks a week or two, why we got together, and Frances Menloff was not here, I guess. Oh, she's not here. Anyway, Frances Menloff lived uh, in the staff and compound where we live. And she set up a meeting whereby Gene Eaglin and some of his friends, and Paul Salisbury and some of our friends, would come together as two rival groups to see whether or not we could become friends and perhaps merge, or whether we look at each other and you know, become enemies. That didn't happen happen because we all uh, we didn't quite know we didn't eat so I didn't know everybody else, we all friends had a wonderful evening We to meeting meet the next week and to talk about really the real possibility of starting a, a journal. And and that was a, a wonderful meeting, those two meetings uh, back in the spring I heard June 1965, and, and from that came the idea then of starting an original journal, uh, and we then had meetings during the summer Subgroups to decide what we were going to do. Uh, we decided we wanted to have a very serious journal, we didn't want to have a glossy journal, we wanted to have the model, like the Ford was the model that eventually was dialogue, was directly out of Paris. These are the kind of journals. Serious journals, tremendously expensive paper, first class typography, basketball type and so forth, the kind of thing that people who are collecting books and magazines would want to take and say, hey, I'm proud of this, I'm gonna put it on my shelf and collect it. That was our goal, to have class from the very beginning. Okay, now that's format, that's one thing. What's gonna be inside? Well, that is where we had some uh, differences of opinion. Joe Jepsen, who was one of our friends, who was a friend, friend of Gene's, and uh, Joe was very competitive. He wanted to take on the general authorities. And said, no, we, we, can't, we can't do this. Gene, Gene told to down, and he was a great guy, and he, he made a big contribution to dialogue, like, but you had to keep him on a tight rope. Okay, Francis Nimov was a conscience of year, the place. She wrote a wonderful article, The challenge of honesty, is still it's part of the dialogue in today, and uh, she had some very fresh, uh, fresh ideas. Salisbury was an ideal man; he had all kinds of ideas, and he agreed to be the point man for getting this thing published. Now, he and I had had conversation a month or two before with the Stanford University Press. I was a by now I was a professor. All these other people were students. I was a professor, and so I got to Stanford University Press to ask their they said, look, we, this is the days of Stanford. Then. And so I, I went through. and the result was that we agreed that if we could get this thing going, with Stanford University Press would be our publisher. Now that was why I said I was astonished. They know we want to help you guys. You know, this is a worthy endeavor. You know, you guys are doing the right thing, we want to help you every way we can. The university then, now as a new faculty member, I didn't have much clout, but the idea sold itself. I went, I went to some of the professors. I went to the chairman of the department, who uh, was a Prize surprise winner, a Jewish destroyed. Wesley's a great idea. They arranged so that I had two more offices on campus where we could have meetings, where we could store things, and where we could have guests didn't work on this new publication. They paid for lights, telephones, typewriters. Stanford paid for all of this. That was one of the main reasons we got going, because Stanford, this was all sub rows up. You know, we've not had I mean, it was not advertised. Keep it quiet, now, keep quiet. So we did. But it meant then that, that when Gene and I finally got into action, why, we had a place, an office, and room, rooms to meet him, And so at that point, what we decided if that, first of all, Gene and I are the only ones who really had a lot of experience in Money Magazine. He had run the pen at the University of Utah, he was an experienced editor, and so by acclamation they decided that we would both be managing after a freebie, co-editors of this enterprise. And uh, Gene, uh, Gene was able to, uh, what Gene really, the number of things he did that were very important, I was able to get at Stanford at this time, so I, I took care of those things. Um, I also then was in charge of appointing an advisory board, which appears on the inside cover of the First Issue Dialogue. Can't read all these names, but there are people like uh, uh, Chase Peterson, um, Kent Lloyd, uh, a, n- a number of people on here, very, very prestigious people who came in our the board. That, that was my job, was to recruit the editorial board. We had about 20 people we recruited from around the country, professors, uh, businessmen, and very uh, prestigious board. And these people were friends. And they put their money on the line and their name on the 9 to help get this thing started. Uh, we made it clear that we were not just a bunch of wild students, but this was a endeavor of faculty and students and we have the support of the university, not the endorsement, but we have the support of, of the university. What about the church? Well, no, we're independent. We're not, we're not seeking the endorsement. Oh, that means you're anti-Mormon. No, it doesn't mean we're anti-Mormon. And this is one conversation we have the next two or three years. The church didn't endorse you, you must be anti-Mormon. We're not anti-Mormon, we're independent. Okay. So we go on from there and and Gene was able, uh, I was able to mobilize the advisory board. Gene's job was to, I was kind of running the back office here, dealing with university affairs, dealing with the advisory board around the country. Gene's mission was A to mobilize the students on campus. We needed help to run this show. Gene was teaching, uh, what was he teaching? He was teaching Western Civ. No, no, not Western Civ. No, he was teaching church education. Institute, Institute, yeah. So Gene mobilized all these institute kids. I'm not sure they knew what they were doing, but they were delighted to come out to our rooms at Stanford. They had nice rooms and everything. We had nice refreshments. And so as the year one, first year went on, Gene was able to do a wonderful job in recruiting uh, all of these students. So that was one of the first things that that he did, which was really tremendous. Secondly, he had contacts in Salt Lake, that I, I didn't. I was an outlier, I, and that's one reason I got involved in this journal because coming from Phoenix, I'd always felt those of us who lived outside of Utah didn't have a voice in the church, and I felt strongly that if the dialogue were to go, it would be a voice for outliers. That's what I was interested in. Anyway, so we we, we got things going, and uh, Jean was also in charge of having relations I had contacts with the general authorities, but he had more contacts. So we both did it, but he was primarily a, a, in, involved. Because he was so like I was not. So like I was a real ally. And so we had our roles cut out for us on uh, what we were doing. Uh, how did we happen to come together? Well, I told you how we met at these informal parties, and the question is how can we get along? Because we're both fairly willed, willful persons. Some of you these guys will never it quarrel, you know, it'll it'll never work. Just what? We never quarreled. Believe it or not, we never, i say this honestly, we never had an argument. It was an amazing, we are different persons, different points of view, different backgrounds, entirely different people, and yet we had a, a, we shared a central vision of a magazine That can bring the Mormon story not only to the Mormon public, the Mormon lay public, where they can express their feelings, but also to the uh, grand public, the the non-Mormon public, where they can see the the Mormon story. These are the two goals we had. Speak to the Mormons and speak to the non-Mormons. Of course, some people said, Oh, you guys want to argue with the general authorities. We said, No. We're not going to argue with general authorities. in fact, we're going to give them free subscriptions to every magazine, so they know what we're doing. And that turned out to be a good idea because they could keep their tabs on us, all they had to do was open up their subscription every, every a month and find out what we were doing. So that's how we got out of the way. Uh, with Gene especially being able to get a more flexible specialist, he's a graduate student. He could go out and speak, he to speak in Chicago speak here and there. Uh, and, and speak at uh, uh, soirees, evenings. And I, I was able to do that too. And so I was a professor, I couldn't get away as easy as he could. But I went to New York and Chicago and San Francisco and other places to speak too. But Gene particularly had more time, and he was a rousing speaker, magnetic speaker, some of you may remember. Uh, tremendously gifted, gifted speaker. And he really gave a vision, lifted up a vision of what we were doing that out of the kind of we had a mission of bringing Mormon thought and Mormon understanding, not only to, to the church, but disenfranchised what the big speak. And, and, and anyway, and so that's that's what finally happened. Uh, I'll, I'll close in just a minute by saying this, that it was a terrific journey to Work with all the people who helped dialogue, dialogue. I was going to read their names, but we don't have time for that. But what I do want to read this. G uh, and I both wrote a neat article for the first issue. I just want to read a little excerpt from the article I wrote. and then. We'll Today is not the past, however, and most Mormons live outside of Utah, so that's that you should I know that. I want a Mormon house. I have a voice. Uh, Los Angeles and New York are as important subsidiary centers of Mormon culture now as St. George and Nephi were 50 years ago. Today it is not unusual to see Mormon congressmen in Washington, Mormon business executives in Chicago, Mormon professors at Harvard, or Mormon space sites in Houston. This is 1965, remember. Mormons are participating freely in the social, economic, and cultural currents of change sweeping across 20th century America. But Mormons do remain apart from the greater American society. Their experience, heritage, and tradition of years in isolation remain an integral part of Mormon belief. Mormon doctrine reinforces individual withdrawal and defiance of conformity. And to face the face of modern convention, the new era of life in the secular world, far from the clashes of the Rocky Mountain Zion, has created a host of dilemmas for the individuals who seek to reconcile faith and, and reason. And then I go on to say, your generations of Mormons has arisen, and this process is spreading about the land. Uh, I think that? Sorry, that that that, that, that was the message I. Gene had messages, I had messages, and Eddie we both had messages. This was part of my message as an outlander. And I felt a particular responsibility, especially because all the letters came in from across the country as well. I was folks, and we got letters from every state, and they knew it from the last minute, everywhere, and people said, we knew there were people like you out there. We knew that someday this would happen. We're just delighted it's happened now. We felt like we touched upon a nerve that was ready for response. Okay, the, let me just say the last thing I want to say that dialogue has been able to be continued because of, um, um, well, first of all, the tremendous amount of effort that Gene would put in, and Scarlett will be able to tell you more about that, but I want to pay homage to him for all of what he did and how he was such a wonderful co-editor. We got the most friendly, relationship. it was a golden kind of relationship. The only thing I, I could call it. I missed you right about something as we all knew. Secondly, I used to pay homage to Bob Reese because towards the end, I was leaving Stanford. Gene had left Stanford the year before the government saw it. I was thought Stanford's only in the fort Bob Reese worked very honestly. We agreed that we would ship the magazine to UCLA. Um, We worked with Elvin Carmack, who was an attorney at that time, and he set up the Dialogue Foundation and this gave us uh, a lasting kind of uh, institution to make sure that we were going to continue this magazine in the future. We were very interested in continuity and we looked around and there were considered three or four different people, but it became apparent that the man who had the hustle and the interest and the connections was one Bob Reese. He, he knew exactly what was going on, he flew up four or five times to Palo Alto, got himself immersed in the magazine to find out what was doing, going on, so that we had really, maybe not a seamless transfer, but maybe almost a seamless transfer from Palo Alto down to UCLA. So I, I want to pay homage to Gene England and also to Bob Priest and to many, many others who I cannot mention, and to let you know that to me, it's been a wonderful ride. It's something that I was very proud of. I went on later in the years to found another journal, public historian for the University of California, which I did many years So I have I have two journals that uh, I've worked on. And but dialogue was always my favorite because we started with great obstacles. And you have no idea of the obstacles we faced, and the people who doubt bad mouth was that you can't succeed, you're going to become apostates. Let me tell you, the life now say is says, Gene and I always feared that late, late night phone call at 11 o'clock. This is XYZ General Authority. We want to tell you guys to the or sister, the sister else. Guess what? The call never came. It never came. And I think it never came because I think the General Authority, and I have this from some of them who were very faithful to that, you guys are putting out of the publication reminding you of P's and Q's, we always almost everything salacious, all way really critical, and so forth. And, and, and so, you know, no wonder you never got that call. There are other critics and so forth. Anyway, that's what I have to say, and thank you for coming here, and thank you for.
5: we decided to go down a little bit early. And we're walking around the grounds. So now this is before the big information center. This is before the Old Bureau Information Center. And then they have growth in there. And the temple was over here. And there was a little fence about, oh, about four feet high. <coughs> That was going on in the office that was described. But sometimes she I remember one time and came home, what were they called? Galley proofs? that okay? And uh, I remember they were mom, and I was reading this, one of the essays that was going in there was that, that called uh, the, the Death of a Son. And a very, very tender uh, story of a woman son is dying and I was just I began to realize that this was really going to come together and and we also had support from some people um, Elder Elder Haight at that time was our state president and he was I remember talking to him outside the church one day and he said this is is a great thing this is really needed I was so glad and he encouraged us and Hughie Brown was wonderful we visit him he he one time when he was not doing well and and his son came came by and said, Ed, I haven't have seen my dialogue lately. Well hopefully you didn't forget to, be, to be. I mean people that we so respected and and uh, both and I mean, these were mentors for us and so it really gave us the courage to, to you know, do this venture. Invited to different places around the Bay Area and uh, to speak. And it was so interesting because we had had a rumor that came back to us after the first publication or so. And uh, it was that Gina and I had left the church, had started our own religion, and were practicing polygamy. And our children were not in the church anymore. Of course, our children were, you know, they were six kids under ten. <laughs> things like that. you know, It was just being really horribly uh, jarring to me that anybody could be so unkind and, and untruthful. So, um, so uh, you know, I didn't say we got used to gossip like that, but uh, it wasn't uncommon. And then, um, so anyway, can we go around to the uh, places in the Bay Area, talk about dialogue for people living writing. And it was always so interesting because there were two groups of people there. One group who had never read dialogue had just heard things about dialogue and these dangerous people that had started it. And then there were others who were just hungry for it. And they were just so happy to have a contact with that. And and so Gene would start out, and, and most of his lectures went ahead. It wasn't just this, but it was how we taught as well. And I we teach the lesson, And at, at first, you know, he'd lay out some things, and then they would be kind of startling, maybe. And uh, you can see the people, some of the people kind of getting squirmy, and, uh, and I, I just wanted to stand up and say, everybody just stay calm. It's all going to work out in the end. <laughs> And so we get them and we'd get through the lecture, and they'd be coming out, and we said, oh, you're so different from we thought you were. You know, we thought you we were some kind of wide-eyed <laughs> beast. <And clears throat> so <clears throat> that was a real, it was a really great experience to meet people uh, that way. Um, and then, uh, uh, and i and of course, I I mean, that's if we could just sit on a tree and talk to each other. Half of these problems would even be, be here. And as I'm the running a show, so um, then Vachin uh, was always trying to find a new way to to create something, to write it, to teach it. It was his his mind was just constantly going for. The things that could make it a little bit better,
4: so he could reach the people better. He was very, very
5: caring about people, and uh, and he, he he could contact them, and they would and, and, and there would be this wonderful thing that would go on. I remember one time there was a, a family in our ward in uh, Palo <laughs> Alto, and uh, and he keep in front of the whole congregation, he criticized Gene for something. It was, it was quite embarrassing. And, um, and it was quite unkind. And so when we were going home, Gene, he just felt sick. And, um, and I said, you better go talk to him. And he says, I don't think he'll let me in the house. And I said, <laughs> you know. So he, he, he did. He went over and about three or four hours later, he came home. And uh, they were making home teachers together. I mean, this is how this dialogue and this conversation and breaks down these barriers that are so, it's just so incredible. of I, mean, I, I just wish people had more of that. Then, um, and when we, uh, then, and of course, we thought we were there permanently. We'd, bought this big old hulky ho- Victorian house and needed a lot of work on it. And we were doing that. And, um, and then uh, when we finally finished it. It took us about three years. And he got a call from one of his was a Danforth fellow, and, and there other fellows from there, from the other states. And one of them was from Minnesota at St. Bill College. And he had gone back home. Anyway, he got a call. We got a call. And he said, "Gene, I'm looking for somebody to be academic vice president. Say, Olaf, would you come and interview for the job? And, he's, and he said, I don't want to be in a the administration. I want to teach. And uh, he said, well, there could probably be a teaching position along with the other. And she said, well, how come we, we thought we were settled in the house we live in and die in? We it was forever. And um, so in one week, our lives changed. And uh, uh, Gene went back and interviewed, and he sent me with our oldest daughter, who was just turning 12 at the time. Uh, anyway, she was just going into go middle school, and you know that's a heartache to have a kid pulled out. So we did it and uh, took the job. We loved it. It was a small college town. And uh, it was um, a time to hand it over. And that was hard. Uh, knowing that we wouldn't be doing this the rest of our lives for dialogue, it was pretty hard. But we knew it was in very capable hands when Bob took it. And he was familiar with it, and we knew Cameron. And we had great faith the <laughs> house. And said he'd written years ago on Jean. This sums up really what Jean uh, his intentions were. The late revere Jean England helped saints with scholars mingle, and some say their minds became unclogged the moment they were Laughter
6: Of the LDS Church. And if uh, he had not flung the doors of the archives open, he had certainly opened them rather wide. And therefore, we had uh, an outpouring of scholarship based on access to Mormon historical documents like they had never been available before. And uh, so much of the period that Linda and I had dialogue was marked in the fact that there was an outpouring, particularly in the area of history, of new scholarship, which was highly controversial because the archives would be able we had several uh, major issues that came up uh, during Dialogue. This is all part of the marketing set of concerns regarding the opening of the archives. And uh, so a number of these things just seem to, to rain down on us. And I think one of the reasons is that we try to get three reporters and honest responses to questions. And uh, yet, yeah, the as un
2: I should mention that when uh, Jack was talking about his choice of professions, and uh, I'm a trained historian, uh, my wife's degrees in American Studies. Uh, in 1965, when I was leaving to go to graduate school, I went to one of my professors, uh, Leonard Arrington, and said, uh, you know, I've, I've selected this school, uh, i just like a few ideas, maybe on a possible dissertation topic. And uh, I left with 42 topics written on my acceptance envelope. But the one thing he asked me, he said, uh, do you want to be a Mormon historian or what? I said, no, I I don't want to be a Mormon historian. I'd really like to get a job. And uh, and he said, no, seriously. And then he told me uh, in that meeting in, uh, in 1965, and I've looked at this later in his, both his journals and his records, but uh, up at USU's library, he told us about the formation of dialogue, that it was going to be coming. What he was saying is there was going to be places to publish things. And he talked about dialogue, what was going on there, he talked about the Mormon History Association was in its infancy and the potential of a journal of Mormon history and he talked about also uh, his work with Western historians that eventually evolved into the Western Historical uh, quarterly and the Westry, Western History Association. Now uh, that just tells you a little bit about Leonard and how he, uh, he was a mentor and he helped people. And I think Linda would say in their work on Emma Smith during the time that Jack described, uh, Leonard was, was great at those things. Uh, he, he was also sometimes really, really naive, except in 1987, one of the things that Jack had been describing were going on, especially the thing relative to Lyndon and Valene's book, as well as some of the other uh, interviews and questions who were having a decision to ask LES employees of the church education system to not participate in dialogue and Sunstone. When, when Leonard got the rumor, by then he had... Uh, He had left the church historian's office, was occupying the red chair now at BYU. He called me and said he didn't think it would be a good idea right now for Kay and I to take this editorship. He felt that that there were storm clouds intellectually on the horizon, and they were already being reflected in some very serious lightning attacks. And so, You know, we had to find out for ourselves, really. And the one thing that, I mean, we found out many things in the five years that we edited dialogue. Uh, Number one, the Newells left it in fantastically great shape, not only with their work, but especially with LaVarna and Suzette uh, Fletcher Green, because they had put together here in Salt Lake City an amazing group of volunteer editors, people who would look over those first drafts and help a lot with the editing work that Uh, Charlotte and West described. There there were other things that the arrangements were very, very good. They had a facility with free rent down at uh, uh, Wally Cooper and Alan Roberts architectural office. And so consequently, we originally made the decision that we would keep the basis of the journal here in Salt Lake City near the publisher, near the editors, where where there's so much of a staff already in place and that uh, I applied for sabbatical and then we came down here and Jack was gracious enough to give me a, a couple of teaching classes up at the University of Utah. I should mention in all honesty that when I think back, and I went back and pre- looked at all the tables of contents and all the articles and, and uh, you know the burger thing, the Quinn thing, some of the ones that, that we did. The thing that I take out of dialogue after all these years the people that that became our friends. And sometimes it was through a fiery furnace, other times it was just unbelievably passionate uh, volunteers and people that, one of the great legacies that came out of dialogue, there are many, I think, but uh, but we tried to enhance the concept of personal essay where people bare their souls and, 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 you know, and I think in all respects those were the hardest ones to reject as an editor, because people were really putting themselves out on the line. And a professional article, you know, one based on history or or some theological thing, that I've always wanted to throw theology out the window, but anyway, uh, other people have more sense than I. But still, I think those personal essays, and then, from my my perspective, the contributions that the journal made and the articles they accepted, Relative to the origins of racial policy and in the treatment of women, the story of women, and the, and the ability of dialogue uh, to allow many, many creative women, artists, uh, writers to have to have a voice as uh, Correlation was taking the Relief Society magazine out of existence. And so I, I think in those areas, those are many of the things that I'm proud of and proud of the uh, shoulders that we were able to stand on and hopefully the continued foundation that we left for Marty and Alan and Gary. But, it, but for us, it was, a, it was a tremendous stride. I think uh, and when I think of all the work that went in, uh, and then I think back to the two decisions that we made that, ang- that I anger- anguished the most about. And it wasn't about uh, second anointings and, you know, I don't I came from a bunch of post-politicalist things, so I just blown that off a long time ago. But anyway, the the two things that bothered me the most that I anguished over, and that came out of the recession of 1987. Well, the the newest left us in very, very good financial shape with a, a good base of subscribers and the beginnings of an endowment, and then that the, the stock market crashed pretty deeply and uh, our editorial board, the publisher, and everybody got together and made two suggestions. And it took, it took me and Kay and our board about a year and a half to finally just say, okay, one was to change the size of the journal, and the second was to go from hot lead type to admitting that computers have value. <laughs> And uh, and And when we went to the artist who did the type, that was my lowest point in five years of dialogue. To say we, like the University of Utah Press, like the Journal of Mormon History, all of them, we're going to leave him high and dry. And I, you know, I I I can take them taking my recommend for a while. That other things have happened during those years and and the uh, you know some of the, some of the battles we may have had with different people with different persuasions, but that personal thing of looking a man in the eye who is an artist and saying, we too are going to submit to the, to the power of the lack of dollars right now. And, and of course, uh, that comes because dialogue is a family, and, and the people that it supported, that put it together, uh, those kind of things, you just never relate those relationships uh, because many of them went through a variety of refiners fired together. And, and so, but but I have to admit that of all the one the one thing, the, the journal that I enjoyed the most was one of the very first one that we were involved in and it had to do with one that featured Minerva Tiger uh, and we, Jack talked about artists but Minerva was from my home area. I had known her my whole life. It didn't seem to me that anyone appreciates the great artist till they die. And I, I just was so thrilled to be part of that particular publication. And so we thank you, Mary. Right? But anyway, uh, you were involved in that and in writing the article about her. And so, anyway, dialogue continues to be a family. And, uh, and as many of you know, uh, Jack and Linda have not been able to ditch us. Uh, we had the privilege of following them at Deep Springs College, and uh, Jack and Linda have spent over 14 years of their lives in that lonesome valley, which is not lonesome, and nor does it lack for things to do. And now Kay and I have spent five and a half years there after the mm-hmm. last half year, and so that is a dialogue in and of itself. But uh, but we have those types of friendships are what we have taken. And uh, that is the thing that Kate really wanted me to emphasize. So thank you. you. We're going
0: to have to pretty much, yay, you did it. I think you, um, I think you all can hear it in the way we've all talked about our experience at Dialogue, that those of us who edit Dialogue tend to be idealists go in believing that we can do everything and and that this journal will be perfect and every article will be the perfect choice and every editorial decision will be sound and pure and you know that spirit of idealism are rich even though I think the price is really really high. I think it's really quite wonderful that for five years of your life you're just up to your eyeballs in Mormon studies. And I think those of us who love language and love writing and believe that writing helps us to communicate stuff that's really deep inside Mm of us, that's really hard to talk about or to express, but that we, for some reason, have this desire to share it with other people that's very much at the heart of the enterprise. For Alan Roberts and Gary Gergera and me, we also brought our activist selves into dialogue. And it was quite wonderful to have Jack talk about his administration, their, their administration and dialogue in the way that he did, referencing Packard's comment. And it very much set the stage for both Ross and Kay's time in dialogue and certainly ours. It wasn't a neutral at all, and regardless of what our hopes were, our, our deepest desires, and what we hope to accomplish in the dialogue, it always was in some ways tainted or overshadowed by that, that larger context of what was going on. Um, when I read the uh, schedule for the symposium uh, this morning um, that will be held on September 30th, it struck me that one of the things I like most about dialogue Frustrated in some ways, but it's also quite wonderful, is that dialogue has this sort of flexible, or supple, or valuable boundary around it. It's not just one thing. You can't have a symposium where you're describing all day long the same thing, because uh, dialogue has shifted in its meaning. It's certainly shifted in the type of articles, or the essays, or the poetry that it is published. Now, I think in a really important way it has responded to the modern world. Maybe it's just the modern world of Mormonism, but I think that's how it, it stays relevant. Uh, it's not this finite set of expectations or ideas or expect- um, ideas about Mormonism. It shifts as, as Mormonism and the issues it provokes in the modern world uh, shifts as well. I think one of the things I love about dialogue and and independent publications around Mormonism is that it really helps us foster scholarship among young people. The Big Dialogue is a fantastic place for older people like us to publish, but it also is a really great place for young scholars to get published and to become experienced with getting a critique of their work. Um, One of the things I was thinking as you all were talking was, on several levels it sounds simpler than it is. an article and then it goes into production. But it actually is really, really, really complicated. Uh, and you, you deal with the authors who are sometimes easy to work with and willing to change and sometimes will just bite you and you know are so hyper-entitled <laughs> uh, and, and stubborn about their work that I mean every, every decision about what is published in dialogue is one that is so thoughtfully and deeply reflected. Alan and Gary and I didn't fight, but we, we would fight for what we believed was important to publish, and we would argue it into the ground, and we would anticipate our critics, um, because we felt like we were surrounded by critics, and we wanted to make sure that we could defend our choices and that they always be sound choices. I feel like our one of the, our big contributions hunt- Was giving, uh, and I'm sure we all feel this way, but giving voice, and I love the way you said this the voice of outsiders. I I think that that's what we did as well. There are so many Mormons who are on the margin or on the edge and feel like they're never being uh, recognized or valued or respected, and I think we gave voice to a lot of people on the margins in a a really important way. I think we confronted difficult issues uh, during our time in in Dallas. I think we, and Ross didn't want to go down through a list of all the amazing articles we all published, but I'd, I'd like to mention a few. Um, we published George Smith's The Novel Roots of Mormon Polygamy, which most recently became his, his book length study of novel Polygamy. We published Michael Quinn's Male Male Intimacy Among Nineteenth Century Mormons, a case study, and I cannot tell you how long we. Talked not only among ourselves but with our editorial board and a larger group of people about the advisability of publishing that and through multiple edits. Um, but I think a really, really important first path work on that topic. We published the line as the LES intellectual community and church leadership, in contemporary chronology, and our very first. the relationship between Freemasonry and Mormonism. And again, that now is a complete study. Um, I thought I would just faces um, I used to feel like knew everyone who was doing this work and and we would always be courting them and trying to get them to submit I love that um, my very favorite part of the dialogue was though um, choosing the artwork and I took that so very seriously and almost all of the artwork that we chose was work that had and you know I'm just speaking for myself in this but it personally affected me I'm with Linda Newell. Art communicates to me on a deep level in ways that writing doesn't. And so I always thought that the art of the paper was another way of speaking to deep truths around our religious experience. So I'm with all of you. I think it was one of the greatest honors and privileges of my professional career. I made lifelong friends. Um, <clears throat> we were so privileged to, you know, maybe in the personal essay where you heard this most, but the experience of men and women in their, in their uh, most private, intimate experience of trying to understand their relationship to each other and, and to their God. And again, I feel like
3: people really made a difference. And really, I think this demonstrates a lot of fellowship there is among those of us who have been privileged to work on dialogue. Uh, I just wanted to say very briefly at the end that uh, to me it was just simply a great joy to be the editor of Dialogue and to both inherit it and pass it on. Um, each of us have had the privilege of being in that place and in that chair when important things happen. The three, three things that I identified very quickly, one was the women's issue. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that we published uh, uh, that issue, that great pink issue. Many gay voices to so many women, and uh, really began, I think, uh, and opened up so many feminine voices that have been so important. Uh, the second one I'm proud of is that I published, uh we published during my editorship, the first essay by a, a gay Latter day Saint. It was called Anonymous, uh, and, but it uh, was the first one in which there was an authentic gay voice speaking to a community was not accepting of gay people. I was walking here a couple of years ago and someone came up to me and said, you don't know me, do you? And I said, no. He said, I was anonymous. (laughs) And it was very touching to me to have him say that. A third, of course, is Lester Bush's great and powerful and uh, foundation-shattering article on the history of blacks and appreciate it. Unless the article came across my desk, I, I was aware that I was in the presence of something very important. And I, it was very controversial to publish it. As you know, if you've read that, I was possible excommunication for doing so. Uh, but it turned out to be uh, the kind of thing that dialogue has done so well. It was not political. It would lay out the history in such a way that it was impossible for people to argue with it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.